to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, New International Version. Hello! Welcome to another episode of Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay. In the studio today, we're going to hear from Patrick Prill, who has written a fascinating book entitled Things Atheists Say That Simply Make No Sense. Patrick is joining us remotely today. We wanted to bring him on because we believe that some of the observations he has made in his book could help listeners who often hear declarations by non-believers and are uncertain about whether those declarations actually make any sense. As longtime Anchored by Truth listeners know, we believe that there are four lines of evidence that demonstrate that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. First, the Bible is historically reliable. Second, The Bible displays a remarkable unity for a book that was composed by over three dozen human authors who wrote over a span of 1,500 years. Third, the Bible gives evidence of supernatural origin, especially through a large body of fulfilled prophecy. And the fourth line of evidence is that the Bible has resulted in an untold number of lives that have been positively changed by its transcendent message. We also strongly believe that the Christian faith is a faith that is grounded in evidence, logic, and reason. Contrary to the refrain that you hear from some people that, you have faith, but I have reason, we believe that a proper use of logic, reason, and evidence actually demonstrates that the Christian faith is true. So today, we're going to hear from someone who has taken a close look at some of the declarations that are made by atheists and see how those declarations stack up when they are analyzed carefully. As I mentioned, Patrick has recorded his observation in a recently released book, Things Atheists Say That Simply Make No Sense. One of the great things about Patrick's book is that his observations are packaged in a very convenient way. It's easy to read what he has to say about a particular atheistic declaration in a few minutes, and his style is very reasonable and informative for the average lay believer. So, let's welcome Patrick Pearl to Anchored by Truth. Patrick, would you like to say a word of greeting to the Anchored by Truth audience and maybe tell us a little bit about your background? Thank you for inviting me to join you on Anchored by Truth. It's a pleasure to join you. By way of background, I'm a Christian. I'm a husband, father of five young adults. I spent over 30 years in the management consulting and investment industry. 
And while pursuing my career, I also took the time to earn a couple of master's degrees, one in church history and the other in theology. And now I focus most of my time on advancing the case for God. Well, as the listeners heard, Patrick has a very impressive background. It's particularly impressive that Patrick took the time during his working career to get two master's degrees to help him understand his faith better. Now we can all benefit from the fruit of Patrick's study and devotion. Patrick, can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to write the book, Things Atheists Say That Simply Make No Sense? There were several reasons why I chose to write the book. The first was that my kids were actually encountering atheists in their high school classes, which was a bit of a surprise to me. It wasn't a theoretical thing in northern New Jersey. The second is when I actually started engaging with atheist ideas by reading the books of many popular atheists, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and many others, I found that many of the things that they said actually made very little sense. Some of the things that they said were just absolutely incorrect. And when I looked for a book that was related to the broad spectrum of things that atheists are saying in their popular books, I couldn't find it. You know, I think that's a really great illustration of what we're instructed to do in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that we're supposed to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. You weren't able to find a book that addressed some of the concerns that you and your kids were encountering, so you took the time and trouble to fill the gap. I think that's a great example for all of us. You know, it's interesting. In the book, I included the stories of 10 atheists who did change their minds. They changed their minds for a variety of different reasons, and that gives me great hope because people who have a very, very strong position can change their position. When they're confronted with evidence, when that evidence is presented to them in the right way, hopefully kindly, patiently. And so I do have hope for all the atheists that I've quoted, and I definitely pray that they do come to know God, and more specifically, that they come to know Christ. Patrick, you address observations made by some of the most well-known atheists of our age, people like Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and others. But one of the great things about your book is that you are only addressing their ideas and not them as people. Well, let's get into some of the specific things atheists say that you've addressed in your book. In your first chapter, you address the observation that the universe looks designed, but it's not. So, would you care to help us understand why that observation doesn't make good sense? In the first chapter, I start with Stephen Hawking's observation that the universe looks designed but it's not. His observation was based upon the extreme fine-tuning of the universe, which he acknowledges. Instead of a creator God, Stephen Hawking's view was that the universe spontaneously created itself from nothing by necessity. And because the probability of having a universe like ours that is so incredibly fine-tuned for life exists, He theorizes that our universe is just one of many. In fact, he states that we would have to have an almost infinite number of universes for one like ours to exist. So rather than a creator God, he attributes this incredibly fine-tuned universe to the universe that had to create itself out of nothing. And he states that our universe is just one of an almost infinite number. Well, just hearing it put that way does sound like a pretty amazing claim. So what's wrong with the claim? So, what's wrong with this statement? 
The first is it goes beyond science. So he, he claims to disregard philosophical solutions to the existence of the universe and embrace a purely scientific approach. But the theory that he advances is unprovable, it's philosophical, it's unscientific. That's according to George Ellis, who's another physicist. The, the other challenge with his theory is there's no reason why the universe would create itself. Paul Davies, another physicist, says that the theory basically doesn't hold up because there's nothing to cause it. And, and overall, it's totally illogical because nothing can't create something by necessity. There is nothing. There is no necessity. There is no reason whatsoever. So all of this goes to show that, you know, as John Lennox says, even world-class scientists can sometimes speak nonsense. I think a lot of us would agree with Professor Lennox. Are there any other issues that you see with the multiverse hypothesis? I think another big issue that most of us would have with this multiverse idea, this nearly infinite number of universes, is if there truly were an infinite number of universes, surely we would be bumping into them by now. But no universe is, in fact, crashing into ours, and there's absolutely no evidence of another universe existing anywhere. You also address the assertion that life looks designed, but it is not. Why doesn't this observation pass intellectual muster? Richard Dawkins claimed that we live on a planet where we are surrounded by perhaps 10 million species, each of which independently displays a powerful illusion of apparent design. That's a pretty incredible statement. Well, just hearing it put that way does sound like a pretty amazing claim. So what's wrong with the claim? He goes on to say that every organ within every species also looks designed. So here you have about 10 million species on planet Earth all of which look designed, and none that do not. Yet he claims that it's merely an illusion. What's wrong with that statement? One of the former atheists that I included in the book, Antony Flew, looked at the same basic information that Richard Dawkins looked at, and he reached exactly the opposite conclusion. Just looking at DNA alone, he observed that DNA consists of a coded language. 3.1 billion characters of coded information, programs, a database, purpose, it's structured, and it's self-replicating. There is no law of nature that develops structured, purposeful information that we're aware of. Antony Flew reached the opposite conclusion. By looking at the universe and life and seeing how designed it was, his conclusion was, there has to be a God. The fact that DNA is actually a vast information storage system that directly points to the need for a creator god is a point that Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, the lead scientist for Creation Ministries International, made forcefully when he was a guest on Anchored by Truth. Any listener who would like to explore this subject in greater depth should go to our website, crystalseabooks.com, and check out the Truth in Genesis series. So, We've even seen that atheist Stephen Hawking says that the universe looks designed, but isn't. And we've seen that another prominent atheist, Richard Dawkins, said that biological life looks designed, but isn't. That's a lot of evidence that points to the need for a designer, but obviously that's not enough for some people. That seems to point to the fact that many people just seem to want to resist acknowledging God's existence. In fact, you point out in your book that some atheists actually assert that there is no God. You have an entire section in your book 
that addresses various atheistic assertions about God. So, let's take a look at some of those assertions. What do you have to say about the assertion that there is no God? The only way that a person could actually make the statement that there is no God with any kind of definitive quality would be for that person to actually possess the attributes of God. So, unless you know everything, unless you have been everywhere, unless you have access to all information that has ever existed, you can't make that claim that there is no God. So, to possess the qualities of God would be required to say that God doesn't exist. That's how absurd the statement is. Well, some atheists go even further and assert that science actually disproves the existence of God. What comments would you like to make about the assertion that science disproves God? Stating that science disproves God is actually a relatively new statement that some atheists are saying. An example is Victor Stenger, who is a physicist and also a philosophy professor. He claimed that if you can develop a workable theory that disproves God, that that theory of itself is sufficient. Now, there's a lot of problems with this. So, the first and the most obvious is the ability to develop an unprovable hypothesis proves nothing. And essentially, that's what Victor Stenger looked at. He was looking at the multiverse idea as a hypothesis that disproved God, but yet the very hypothesis itself isn't capable of being proved by the scientific method. You can't test it. So, to say that an an unprovable hypothesis proves anything absolutely makes no sense. You also address the comment by some atheists that they just don't want there to be a God. How do you respond to this comment? Thomas Nagel is an atheist who says that he doesn't want God to exist. He doesn't want the world to be that way. What's surprising to me in Thomas Nagel's case is he's a very, very intelligent man. He observes that natural selection alone could not have produced the complexity that we see in life. He also observes that consciousness and mind seems to be inherent within the universe. So, he, he acknowledges that natural processes could not have produced complexity. He acknowledges that the universe does seem to be imbued with intelligence, but he doesn't want that to be God. He basically diagnoses himself with a cosmic authority problem. Now, what doesn't make sense to me about that whole equation is that his first two observations are actually in support of the existence of God, but he doesn't want there to be a God because he has a cosmic authority problem. Why would you have a cosmic authority problem if, in fact, the God, the creator of the universe, was beneficent? What if that God was kind and loving and gracious? What if that God were so kind and loving and gracious to give us freedom of choice, to choose whether to love him back or not? That, to me, would be a God I would want to know. And the idea of having a cosmic authority problem when the likelihood of God existing is incredibly high, according to his observations, When you think about what a God who could create a universe like this would be like, it would suggest that that God would actually be good. So why have a cosmic authority problem? And how could you have a cosmic authority problem if there isn't a cosmic authority to begin with? As R.D. Fierro pointed out in our Lord of Logic series, quite often critics of God's existence wind up 
inadvertently acknowledging that God must exist because, if he didn't, their objection to his existence makes no sense. So, what do you have to say about the assertion by some atheists that they not only deny the existence of God, but also the accountability that such a God represents? Friedrich Nietzsche from the early 1900s is probably the most, I guess, well-known case of a, a prominent atheist shaking their fist at God. And more specifically, not only was he shaking his fist at God and coining the phrase that God is dead, but what he really rejected was the idea of Christian morality. And he wanted no accountability to a moral code, definitely not a Christian moral code. And the fundamental problem that he had with a Christian moral code was Christianity says that all souls are created equal in the eyes of God. But to Nietzsche, who had embraced the whole idea of biological naturalism, he saw that people were not imbued with the same strengths, that people in his eyes were in fact not equal, and that the strong should basically subjugate the weak, that subjugation was not a harmful thing, that it was actually good, and that it benefited the advancement of the species. So the great irony to me is that Nietzsche was shaking his fist at God, denying the morality of a Christian moral code, and instead he was replacing it with a moral code that is about as far from moral as you can possibly get. You also take on what is sometimes termed the problem of pain. What do you have to say to those who believe that the existence of pain is an impediment to a reasonable belief in God? The idea at the heart of the problem of pain is the question of why would a good and loving God, who's also powerful, allow pain and suffering to exist in the world? And more specifically, why would that God allow extreme pain and suffering to exist in the world? This has been a question that's been asked for a long time, obviously. Epicurus in, I guess it was about the 4th century BC, David Hume in the 1700s, have prominently asked this question in their writings. And I guess my response would start off with a couple of observations. Number one, I look at the sources of pain, and nature is obviously one of those. You know, there's earthquakes, floods, typhoons, etc. But also, you know, nature is a source of incredible bounty and provision and sustenance to us. So why would a good and loving God allow nature to be both good, bountiful, plentiful, providing for us, as well as presenting us with challenges. And one of the things I observe is in Psalm 107, for example, it says that God allows storms, God allows need, God allows calamities, because those storms, needs, and calamities actually draw us to God. They cause us to look to God. So they serve as sort of a catalyst. And I think that we can all kind of relate to that of, you know, if everything were always perfect in our lives, would we even look to God? Would we care about God? Would we perceive any need for God? So need and calamity and storms are actually, in a way, an act of mercy on God's part to point us to God. So that's kind of one of the first sources of pain and suffering and calamity in the world. But the calamity that exists in the natural world is by no means the only source of calamity or pain in our world, is it? The biggest one is not nature. The biggest one is people. When you look at the Holocaust, that was caused by people. When you look at the millions of people murdered in the communist era of Mao Zedong, of Stalin, these were people's decisions. 
So why would a good and loving God allow people to make decisions that are horrendously harmful to other people? And I guess the simple reason is God could have made us puppets. He could have pre-programmed us. He could have, you know, caused us to do the right thing always, all the time. But if he had done that, we wouldn't really be people. We wouldn't be free, independent beings. And we definitely would not have had the capacity to express genuine love. Love is only love if it's a choice. If you're programmed to love, it's not love. And so you really look at the question of, does the benefit, does a world with love, you know, exceed the harm of choice? And I would suggest that all of us would much rather live in a world with genuine choice, with genuine love, you know, even though it can be really messy, than we would be to just be pre-programmed puppets or robots that do what we do because we're told to do it. So I look at the problem of pain and there's a lot of possible reasons. But ultimately, those reasons, you know, don't come in conflict with the idea that God is truly good and truly loving. Some atheists claim that there is no such thing as right or wrong. How do you respond to that assertion? The idea that there's no such thing as right or wrong generally comes out of the first lane of the three lanes of naturalism. And that's the lane of scientific materialism. Scientific materialism, it basically presents the ideas that you are just matter. You know, basically people are just lumps of clay. People have no intrinsic value and we have no purpose or meaning in life. There is no purpose of the universe and no purpose in the universe. They also generally state that because there's no intrinsic value and no purpose, that the idea of morality is sort of nonsensical. There is no such thing as right or wrong. Now, they do state that we generally have a cultural moral code, but the general idea that they present is that even though there's a moral code, there's no real such thing as right or wrong. So, the first and obvious problem with that perspective is, if you ask someone if you should go out and murder someone else, they'll generally say no. And the first time that you utter the word should, you're generally making a moral decision. You have a moral perspective. So even if you claim that there is no absolute right and wrong, it's obvious that moral decisions happen all the time. People do have a perspective on what is right and what is wrong, even if you don't share the idea that there is an absolute right or wrong. So the idea of no right or wrong breaks down almost immediately. Similarly, some atheists say that there is really no reason for us to live. This is a very common nihilistic perspective among those who reject the existence of God. Why does this observation make no sense? The atheists that say that there's no reason to live generally do so because they believe that there's no such thing as purpose or meaning in the universe. They say that there's no purpose of the universe and that there's no purpose in the universe. And therefore, because there is no purpose, whether you live or die doesn't really matter. So whether you continue to live, there is no meaning or purpose in life. I guess that breaks down for me very quickly in that when I look at the universe, even many of the atheist scientists acknowledge that there is purpose in the universe. So, for example, you will see people like Jacques Manad, and he's a Nobel Prize winner, who say that there's purpose in the universe, biological purpose, though he doesn't exactly know why. 
So you'll also look at things like DNA, where DNA is structured information. It consists of language. It consists of programs. It does things. It self-replicates. It supports life. You know, there is purpose in the biological system. So to say that there's no purpose of the universe is a little bit like saying about your car that, well, my carburetor has a purpose, but my car doesn't. It really breaks down quickly because the moment you acknowledge any purpose in the universe, you have to acknowledge a purpose of the universe. And I guess the other reason that it breaks down for me is that, you know, Professor Alex Rosenberg at Duke, for example, would contend that there is no purpose in the universe, there's no purpose of the universe, and that any decision that you make where you think that you have purpose and meaning is actually just an illusion. It's an illusion of your consciousness. So to me, I find the whole idea that our decisions, our purposes, our plans either are non-existent or are merely illusions is really pretty nonsensical. Because if that were the case, then why would Professor Rosenberg get up every day, go and teach class? Why would he write novels? Why would he write books? Why would he do anything if there's truly no purpose and no meaning and no reason to live? It just makes no sense. While we've been able to discuss a lot today, we haven't been able to get to all the questions we want to ask Patrick. So we're hoping Patrick won't mind joining us on the next episode of Anchored by Truth. But before we close with prayer, Patrick, would you like to offer a few final thoughts for today? As we bring this first episode to a close, I think the thing I'd like to encourage people in is there are a lot of reasons why people choose to be atheists. In some cases, they generally just can't see it. You know, whether it's a naturalistic worldview that's blinded them, whether, you know, pain and suffering in the world is their obstacle, the poor witness of a Christian, or maybe it's just even unanswered prayer. They just can't see it yet. It's really important for us to contend for truth. In a compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving, and loving way. You know, how we contend for truth, how we proclaim Christ, how we proclaim belief in God is incredibly important, or our message just simply isn't going to be received. So that's my encouragement, and I pray that God gives everyone wisdom in how to do that. We'd really like to thank Patrick Pearl for being our guest on Anchored by Truth today. I think we can all be inspired by the kind of reasoned approach that Patrick uses to address objections that are lodged against Christianity. Patrick's story is just one more example of how sacred scripture, the Bible, continues to demonstrate its supernatural nature through our lives that are changed for the better for all eternity by its saving power. Today, for our closing prayer, how about if we pray for renewal of the church in our nation? Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 tells us the Lord says that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. A prayer for the renewal of the Church. Righteous and just Father, you know the thoughts and meditations of your people as no one could. You are the Lord of our hearts and the fulfillment of all of our ambitions. You have numbered the hairs on our head. 
so you certainly know when we propose to do your will and when we don't. Lord, there are a great many faithful followers of yours in our nation today. There are many whose hearts are totally devoted to you and who want to see your kingdom come and your will be done. Yet within your church, we believe there are many who have been tempted by the snares of the world and a great many who have fallen prey to the evil one. We are saddened and grieved by this and we yearn for restoration and renewal of the church in our land. Lord, if this nation is to survive and remain a land where people may freely worship you, we acknowledge that it will not be done through or by our efforts. Only the Holy Spirit can change the hearts of our countrymen, and we believe that he will act only as we persistently and continuously pray for renewal to come. Words do not do justice to the longings within our spirits to see this nation be visited by another great awakening. As you have done in the past, bring light to your people. Let us learn to handle your word properly and then bring it to the world by Christ's power, through Christ's love, and praying continuously in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time when we continue our discussion with Patrick. And we hope that you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not famous, but our boss is.